We want to welcome you to the Bible teaching ministry of Fellowship Bible Church, where our desire is to honor God by faithful obedience to His Word. If you want to understand the Bible better, please continue to listen as Pastor Matt Postiff explains and applies the biblical text one verse at a time. You can reach us with questions or for more teaching audio and print material at our website, fbcaa.org. You can also watch our services live at fbcaa.org live. We want to thank you for listening and pray that you will be edified. Join us now as Pastor Postiff opens God's Word. Romans chapter 14. Receive one who is weak in the faith, but do not to disputes over doubtful things. For one believes he may eat all things, but he who is weak eats only vegetables. Let not him who eats despise him who does not eat, and let not him who does not eat judge him who eats, for God has received him. Who are you to judge another's servants? To his own master he stands or falls. Indeed, he will be made to stand, for God is able to make him to stand. One person esteems one day above another. Another esteems every day alike. Let each be fully convinced in his own mind. He who observes the day observes it to the Lord, and he who does not observe the day to the Lord he does not observe it. He who eats eats to the Lord. For he gives God thanks, and he who does not eat, to the Lord he does not eat, and gives God thanks. For none of us lives to himself, and no one dies to himself. For if we live, we live to the Lord, and if we die, we die to the Lord. Therefore, whether we live or die, we are the Lord's. For to this end Christ died and rose and lived again that he might be Lord of both the dead and the living. But why do you judge your brother? Or why do you show contempt for your brother? For we shall all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. For it is written, As I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me, and every tongue shall confess to God. So then, each of us shall give account to himself to God. Therefore, let us not judge one another any more, but rather resolve this, not to put a stumbling block or a cause to fall in our brother's way. I know and am convinced by the Lord Jesus that there is nothing unclean of itself, but to him who considers anything to be unclean, to him it is unclean. Yet, if your brother is grieved because of your food, you are no longer walking in love. Do not destroy with your food the one for whom Christ died. Therefore, do not let your good be spoken of as evil. For the kingdom of God is not eating and drinking, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. For he serves Christ in these things, is acceptable to God and approved by men. Therefore, let us pursue the things which make for peace and the things by which one may edify another. Do not destroy the work of God for the sake of food. All things indeed are pure, but it is evil for the man who eats with offense. It is good neither to eat meat nor drink wine nor do anything by which your brother stumbles or is offended or is made weak. Do you have faith? Have it to yourself before God. Happy is he who does not condemn himself in that he approves. But he who doubts is condemned if he eats, because he does not eat from faith, for whatever is not from from faith is sin. Turn to 1 Timothy chapter 4. Rarely does this happen where the scripture reading coordinates with the text, but uh, there is a connection here this evening with Romans 14. In fact, I was going to reference one of the verses, and then I saw at least two or three that I could reference. Uh, but, of course, you already read it, Jerusalem. Maybe we'll just allude to it uh, at this point. But uh, you'll see that connection a little bit later on as we look into the word this evening. Uh, before we start chapter 4, though, we do have a little bit to finish up at the end of chapter 3. We didn't make it all the way through last time. And um, for those who are visiting with us this evening, we've been working through First Timothy. 
And uh, I've enjoyed the study. It's been uh, profitable to my thinking and living, and I hope to you as well. And uh, we had just made our way through Chapter 3. Of course, the first, uh, the major section of Chapter 3, the large majority of it, is, is directed at the, leader, the leadership of the church, first to elders or pastors and then the deacons. Of course, we said as we studied through there that these, uh, these qualities are applicable to all believers, uh, with perhaps a few exceptions, but for the most part, all of us as Christians should be exemplifying the kind of character that Paul is laying out here for the elders and for deacons. And then uh, we looked at verses 14 and 15, but we didn't make it to the last uh, verse uh, in, in this section. And so let me just read 14 to 16 again, make a few brief comments about verse 16, and then it actually does connect well to what we'll be looking at in verses 1 to 5 of chapter 4 this evening. Paul writes this in uh, verse 14 of chapter 3, These things I write to you, though I hope to come to you shortly. Paul is, desires to be there in Ephesus, to be with the church, to be there with Timothy, who's there trying to correct some of the issues and establish uh, good leadership and doctrine. But he says in verse 15, But if I am delayed, I write so that you may know how you ought to conduct yourself in the house of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and ground of the truth. And without controversy, Paul writes in verse 16, Great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifested in the flesh, justified in the spirit, seen by angels, preached among the Gentiles, believed on in the world, received up in glory. Now, uh, we won't review all of it except that uh, Paul is giving us here the purpose for writing what he's written in chapter, namely chapters 2 and 3, these instructions, because he knows there's a possibility for whatever reason he may be delayed, but the instructions are of such importance and critical to the life of the church that he says, I've got to write in case I'm delayed. And the, he gives us gives us two reasons why it's such a, so critical that he writes these instructions and that they receive them sooner than, than later. And number one, it is because the church, uh, the, house, the church is the household of God, the, the church of the living God. And so it's important because the church is God's household. It belongs to God. And therefore, God's rule and, and, and commands and imperatives are, are critical for the church to know and to receive. And secondly, Paul says it is because the church is the pillar and ground of the truth. Pillar and ground are really kind of synonymous uh, ideas for that they are the support and the protector of the truth. They both protect it from error, but also support it and and hold it up as, as God's truth. And so Paul gives us these two reasons for why he writes instead of waiting to, uh, to give them these instructions. And then in verse 16, he goes on to expand and really ex- explain what he means by the fact that the church is the pillar and ground of the truth. This, this truth, uh, Paul expands upon and explains here in verse 16, where he says, without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. Um, the body of beliefs that God has given by the apostles and other writers of the scripture, and in this context, namely the truth of the gospel, is what Paul is speaking about here in verse 16. And in verse 16, he outlines this truth. What is this truth that, that the church is the, the protector and the support of? Well, Paul, in kind of summary fashion, lays it out here. Paul says this, he states that without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. What, what Paul is saying is that all genuine believers accept these statements as the truth. It's widely accepted that these things are true. Anyone who doesn't accept them is not within that community of, of genuine born-again believers. Now, what Paul is not saying is that there's no one that contends with this idea. There, there, of course, are many who contest the Christian faith and contest that these things aren't actually true. But then these aren't true believers. And so what Paul is saying is that true believers accept this without controversy as being the truth. 
mystery here, uh, you know, often we get confused by this. Mystery doesn't mean that it's, you know, it's clouded in some kind of, you know, mystical thing. We can't really discern what it is. It's, it's a mystery. Rather, uh, namely, when, when Scripture talks about something being, being a mystery, it, it's talking about something that once was hidden, once not revealed, but now has been plainly made known. It's, it's no longer a mystery. It's, it's been explained. It's been revealed. And so Paul is saying that this great mystery has been revealed, this mystery of godliness. Now, this mystery, Paul says, is the mystery of godliness. Well, uh, you may scratch your heads. What does he mean by godliness, the mystery of godliness? Is he, is he talking about, um, you know, similarly to earlier in the book about, you know, women being godly and their profession of godliness being demonstrated by, you know, their apparel and how they behave in the church? I think in, in one sense that is included the behavior of a, of a believer in response to the truth, but really what Paul is talking about here is, is not just the, the lifestyle of the believer, but really the Christian faith, the Christian religion. Um, it is really the mystery of the godliness. There's actually in the Greek the article before it, so he's saying great is the mystery of, of the godliness, which Paul then is likely using this as a, uh, a synonym for the Christian religion. And therefore, Paul was extolling God's powerful actions that, that form the basis of the gospel and the transforming results that derive from accepting it. One who accepts the Christian faith and the religion then, then be, behaves in a godlike fashion, in a godly manner, in a Christ-like manner. And so Paul is saying, great is this Christian faith which believers have accepted as the truth and have responded in their conduct by behaving in godliness. So what is this truth, then? Well, the content of this truth is summarized in the last part of verse 16, and uh, many think this is perhaps a hymn or some kind of confession that was spoken or sung in the early church. The way verse 16 is written indicates that these may have been stanzas to a well-known hymn, kind of like uh, you know we have certain really robust theological uh, hymns uh, and verses that you know kind of focus on different theological truths. This may have been the case. Uh, this this uh, these stanzas may have been some hymn that was sung or spoken, or it may be a, a confession that Paul is borrowing from the Christian community thus inscripturating it, making it part of Scripture, what the church had already accepted as being true, based on you know, what they knew of, of Christ and his teaching. The one, then, that this hymn or confession speaks of is the one who, Paul says, came in the flesh and later ascended into heaven. And by you know, deduction, we can recognize, well, that, that must be the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. It is the Son of God, who is God. And that's why, you know, when it says at the uh, beginning of this, this stanza, God was manifested in the flesh, we know that God here is speaking of the second person of the Trinity, Jesus Christ. Look, let's uh, take a moment then to look at each of these, these uh, lines here, these, these stanzas, and try to understand uh, what's going on here. The truth uh, here is a confession, a brief statement of important Christian beliefs, and he begins by saying this, God was manifested in the flesh. Christians, as Christians, we believe in the incarnation of Christ, that he came in the flesh, took on human flesh, being both then God and man, the God-man. We know this even from uh, the very uh, early portions of the Gospels. This is whom we believe and accept the one who is manifested in the flesh, made known. Secondly, he is the one who has been justified in the Spirit. This means that Jesus was vindicated by the Holy Spirit, whether Paul is thinking or has in mind uh, the baptism, baptism of Christ, where God speaks and the Spirit descends like a, a dove, and you know, uh, the Father uh, confirms and affirms that this is his Son in whom he is well-pleased. Perhaps, perhaps uh, it speaks of scriptures which declare him to be the Christ, or perhaps even as a, it is a reference to the Holy Spirit raising Christ from the dead. The Spirit was an agent in that. We see that in Romans eight eleven to 13. It tells us uh, 
explicitly that, that the Holy Spirit raised him from the dead, therefore uh, vindicating or justifying that he is who he said he was, the Savior, the Son of God. What, whatever instance this stanza has in mind, the fact is it is, it is vindicating who Jesus is, declaring him as, as the Christ. The third phrase here, and at least in our scriptures, is that he was seen by angels. Angels observed Jesus' birth. They were there. Remember, they announced to the shepherds. Uh, they, they were part of that, that, uh, the, the events that unfolded there. They uh, were there through his life and ministry. Remember, angels came and ministered to him after his temptation. He was, they were also there at his resurrection. Remember, the apostles come, the disciples come, and uh, and also the women, you know, and, you know, why are you looking here? He's not here, for he has risen, as he said. So they were a part of his ministry and life then at the resurrection. And I'll be honest, this, this portion of this, of this hymn or, or uh, uh, confession does kind of make me scratch my head in this way. You know, uh, what, what, uh, what significance does this have in relationship to the Christian faith? You know, why... You know, we're kind of talking about a summary of the gospel truth and why does he put in seen by angels? And to me, it's you know, somewhat puzzling how this kind of rises to the top here. But perhaps its, its purpose is to testify of the risen Christ by stating that angels indeed saw him and, of course, then in response, worshipped him as the Son of God. So both he was witnessed by, you know, we see in uh, uh, 1 Corinthians 15 that, uh, you know, many saw him in his resurrection so we see on a human level many, many witnesses of the risen Christ, but even in the angelic realm we have confirmation that Christ rose again. And later in Revelation we see the angels you know, before him, worshiping him, bowing down to the Lamb. And so perhaps this is, rises to prominence because of the fact that they confirm him as well as risen and as the, as the Lamb of God. Now, not long after the apostles and other Christians began preaching Jesus crucified and risen, did they begin to preach this message among the Gentiles, and that's why Paul writes here he was preached among the Gentiles. The, the, the message of Christ quickly spread not just in Jerusalem but beyond into, into uh, other regions, into the Gentiles. Uh, we see in Acts, as we're reading through on Sunday mornings, that... Um, Philip uh, then began to minister to Samaria. Of course, he ministered to the Ethiopian eunuch. And Peter uh, went on to uh, minister and preach to the Gentiles in Caesarea. We also see Paul, of course, himself going on and ministering, along with Timothy and all his other uh, co-workers in the ministry. Finally, or not finally, but uh, the next stanza we see here is that he was believed on in the world. Jesus was believed on throughout the whole world. Paul writes, Paul could say that people all around the world in the first century had believed on Jesus because they had really gone to what the first century world looked like in that day, and uh, had, the gospel had spread through all Asia Minor and Judea and uh, on to Rome. We can say the same thing today, understanding that not all people have heard the gospel and and that not even all, every country has perhaps a missionary right now or even an established church, but generally speaking, the gospel has sounded forth to all the world. Still, that doesn't mean there is not still a great need for more pastors and missionaries and evangelists. Paul is not saying that the work's done here, that you know, every person has believed or that you know, every, every, uh, every uh, nation has heard, but rather that generally speaking, the gospel has sounded forth, and it is being believed on by many throughout the world. Finally, he says in the final stanza or uh, sentence here, he has been received up in glory. Jesus ascended to heaven and resides at the right hand of God. Of course, uh, we may scratch our heads again and say, well, this seems to be chronologically out of order. You know, maybe we'd put it, uh, after seen by angels or something like that because, you know, he ascended before really the gospel went all the way out into the world or at least the world as it looked in that uh, first century. But uh, even though it seems perhaps chronologically out of order, it reminds us that Christ is, is sitting at the right hand of God right now interceding for us 
and waiting, sitting, waiting to come again and rule over his kingdom on earth. And so really, it is kind of the capstone of Christ is now sitting at the right hand of God, waiting to, to continue and finish his work of, of, of establishing his kingdom and, and then uh, entering into the eternal state. And this is the a summary of, of the Christian faith or the things which we accept as the truth just as it was accepted in that way in the early church. And then, so then Paul then enters into a discussion in verses 1 to 5 on those who oppose this truth, those who contest that this is the truth and rather preach some other doctrine, some other Christian or some other faith and, and practice. Verses 1 to 5 read in chapter 4, Now the Spirit expressly says that in latter times some will depart from the faith, giving heed to deceiving spirits and doctrines of demons, speaking lies and hypocrisy, having their own conscience seared with a hot iron, iron, forbidding to marry and commanding to abstain from foods which God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. For every creature of God is good, and nothing is to be refused if it is received with thanksgiving, for it is sanctified by the word of God and prayer." So in contrast, then, to the body of truth, which all believers wholeheartedly agree as being the truth, like we saw in verse 16 of chapter 3, Paul then goes on to warn Timothy in verses 1 to 5 in chapter 4 that there will be some who will depart from the faith and follow after those who are deceivers and teachers of doctrines that are not the truth, which the church is to guard and protect which are not God's word and are not from God, but ultimately are Satan's lies aimed at devouring those who are of the household of God and those who have been called to lead and shepherd God's people. And if Timothy had any ambition to be a good minister of Jesus Christ, and I think he did, then he was to recognize and to avoid or deal with Satan's deceivers and, and his doctrines, lest he or others in the church depart from the faith like some had and others will. And so the focus of our message this evening is this, that believers are to recognize and avoid Satan's deceivers and his doctrines, lest they apostatize like some. The presence of false teachers was already indicated in verse, uh, chapter 1, verses 3 to 7. We already discussed that, as well as uh, verses 18 to 20 of chapter 1. But until now, Paul has not explicitly stated the content of the false teaching. He's alluded to the fact that they're believing into myths and genealogies and disputing about these matters, but not really any specific content uh, explained. But we'll see, that, uh, see some of that here in our passage this evening. We can deduce by what we read in chapters 2 and 3 some of the ramifications, at least, of this teaching. But it isn't until now that we get a glimpse of what these apostate teachers were actually teaching. We begin, though, looking at verse 1 and in, in, uh, recognizing the unfortunate truth that there is certainty of apostasy. It is certain. It will happen. It has happened throughout the, um, throughout the Christian faith, throughout the, the, the early church and into this age. The Spirit here uh, in verse 1 is a reference to the Holy Spirit. And so what Paul is saying is that the Holy Spirit was making it expressly or, or explicitly known that false teachers would cause some to depart from the faith. Of course, this was not necessarily new revelation. This is, was already happening in the church. And uh, if you remember even back to Acts chapter 20, when Paul is in Ephesus, he warns about uh, those who are going to come in like wolves and, and seek to devour them. So he's already, he's already spoken about this. The Holy Spirit has already made it known through Paul that this was going to happen. But it may be then what's happening here is that, that the Spirit is reconfirming, reemphasizing what was already revealed. He's explicitly making it clear that this is happening and, and will happen. Regardless, Paul understood that the Spirit of God to be superintending his words so that what he wrote uh, was, was of God and of the Holy Spirit. 
who was giving clear warning of the threat of apostasy because of deceivers and the doctrines which they taught. And so what the Spirit is doing then is expressly, Paul says, making known that uh, in latter times people will depart from the faith. That's what verse 1 tells us, the beginning of verse 1. Now, often when we think of latter times, we immediately go to the eschatological future, you know, sometime down the road, you know, just just prior to the rapture, perhaps, you know, when things are going to get really bad, or perhaps, you know, in the tribulation, of course, uh, there'll be deceivers. And so our minds, at least mine, automatically often go there when we think of latter times. But the fact is, the latter times are already here from the perspective of the apostles. Uh, I found this verse interesting. First John chapter two eighteen tells us this. And actually, uh, uh, on my way there, I'm going to stop in First Peter chapter two, verse ten. First Peter two ten. Uh, and that's not the verse I'm looking for, so. We'll go on to 1 John chapter 2. Maybe I'll remember as I'm looking uh, at this next verse. But 1 John chapter 2, verse 18. It says here, little children, it, it is the last hour. Notice what he says. He doesn't say, you know, the last hour is coming. It is here, the last hour. And as you have heard that the Antichrist is coming, even now many Antichrists have come, those who are in opposition to Christ, false teachers, by which we know that it is the last hour. And so John here is explicitly making it known that, you know, they're not just thinking of some future time, but really the latter times are here. It is, it's already taking place. And so from that and other scripture, we can conclude then that we are in the latter times as well. If if the apostles understood themselves to be there, well, you know, how can we say we're not? And, and uh, you know, the facts kind of, kind of uh, you know, uh, defend this, that people today are leaving the faith because of, of deceptive spirits and, and doctrines of demons. It's happening now already. It has been happening since, since the time of the early church. Paul says that uh, here in verse 1 that in these latter times, some will depart from the faith. Some from the faith will apostatize. This is a separate group from the false teachers who are teaching false doctrine. Apostasy means to leave or depart from something or someone, and in this sense, they're departing from the truth, from the faith which they first received from, from, uh, from Paul and also now from Timothy. The reality is that some professing uh, believers who have, gone, who have grown up in the church and in the home, have had Christian parents or Christian friends, will depart from the faith because of the teaching of those who are not of the faith, those who are false teachers. And so they apostatize. They turn away from the faith. Of course, uh, in these cases, it's often the fact that they made a profession of, of faith, but, of course, it, it wasn't a genuine, genuine uh, profession of faith. Of course, we leave room, uh, and I'll mention this a little bit later, that there are believers who, who can get, uh, can get uh, pulled, away, pulled away by false teaching. Of course, you know, hopefully in time past, they'll, they'll recognize their error and come back, but you know, believers are not, uh, they're still susceptible to false teaching, uh, unfortunately. So Paul lays out the fact of the certainty of apostasy in the beginning of verse 1, but then he, he, he gives us this in, in the latter part of verse 1 and into the first part of, of verse 2, that there is a path to apostasy. There is a path to apostasy. The path to apostasy begins when you allow yourself to give attention to false teaching. Look what he says at the end of verse 1. He says, these ones who depart from the faith are giving heed to deceiving spirits and doctrines of demons. This path begins when one allows himself to give attention to that which is not the truth. To give heed means to occupy oneself with something. So they, they become so, uh, uh, so uh, uh, enamored by this false teaching that they give themselves over to it. And they begin to heed it and listen and, and follow along. 
And let me uh, warn ourselves this evening, if you become so interested in what non-believers have to say about morality, in other words, if you always are going you know, to the media or to the, you know, the latest philosopher or, or uh, you know, any kind of news source today, if you allow yourself uh, to listen to them, you eventually will possibly become occupied with their teaching. If you, begin, if you become so interested in what they have to say about morality, the Christian doctrine, etc., you are putting yourself in a dangerous position because the more you listen, the more susceptible you become to their teaching. Furthermore, today with the access to hundreds of pastors and theologians and scholars on the Internet, you know, it's, it's out there, you can find it, lack of discernment and self-control may lead you to following the teaching or philosophy of someone who is not a genuine believer. Because what they hear, what you hear, sounds good. Well, they sound like a good, you know, a, a good Christian. They, you know, they they have confidence in what they're saying, and it seems to, uh, you know, to to uh, be correct according to the Scripture. But lack of discernment, lack of maturity in the faith, being able to recognize error, can leave one susceptible to error. And whether by deception or willful rebellion against God. This was the case in the church in Ephesus. Some had become enamored by this false teaching. There certainly was an element of deceptiveness going on in the false teachers and in their their teaching. But, of course, those who gave heed to their teaching were wholly responsible for turning away from the truth. They were culpable, just like Eve being deceived in the garden, you know, was still culpable, still responsible for her sin. Um, there was still you know, deception taking place, and that's what's happening here. We see in the church in Ephesus and what happens today. People are deceived, and they willingly follow this, this deception and this error. Those departing the faith are said to be occupying themselves with deceiving spirits and doctrines of demons. These are two kind of interesting ideas here, deceiving spirits and doctrines of demons. What is Paul talking about? Well, The idea is that these false teachers and their doctrines or teachings originate in the satanic realm. They come from Satan. At the heart of these teachings is Satan at work through willful agents in his work. Of course, it's certainly possible that even some of these teachers were demonically possessed, but uh, I think what Paul's focus really is is that it originates from Satan. These teachings and these deceivers are agents and of, of Satan. The path to apostasy then not only includes, uh, includes one willingly heeding, giving heed to, uh, to this false teaching, but also includes the influence that false teachers can have on a person through their deceptive and hypocritical lies. And uh, in the New King James here, it's, it's a little bit hard to track kind of Paul's argument uh, that there's two different uh, kind of factors going on here when it comes to departing from the faith. Like we said, the first, the first uh, part is that they give heed to these deceptive uh, or deceiving spirits and doctrines of demons, but they also, in verse 2, are giving in to the influence of those who are speaking lies in, in hypocrisy. And so there's really two, two, uh, two parts here. The path to apostasy then includes the influence that false teachers have on a person through their lies, through their deception, through the false teaching that they propagate. Those departing the faith were being led into apostasy by hypocritical liars who Paul says uh, have consciences which have been seared. The fact that Paul calls them hypocritical liars implies that they knew what they were doing was wrong, and what was contrary to the gospel, which the scriptures taught, but they did it anyways. They certainly weren't seeking to bring glory to God by, by, uh, by forcing these, these lies and these, these uh, hypocritical behaviors and practices. Certainly the idea was not to bring glory to God and to, and to honor the scripture and to, and to, and to uh, preach uh, sound doctrine. Rather, in their, hypo- in their hypocrisy, they were, they were spreading lies that gave not glory to God, but brought, sought to bring glory upon themselves and the person who was, was accepting these teachings. How can, get, how can a person get in such a kind of state of being where they do things thinking they're, 
you know, maybe bringing glory to God, but really they're glorifying themselves and really things become about themselves. Well, Paul tells us how it happens when people's consciences are seared. This kind of state of, of giving in to uh, or, or propagating false teaching and, and lying through the teeth only happens when uh, one's conscience has been seared through habitual disregard of the truth. They heard the truth, certainly, at one point, but they disregarded it. Their conscience, you know, uh, quieted, it was quieted by their habitual disregard of that truth so that at, uh, at, at a certain point they no longer could discern right from wrong. And what they propagated was, was error. And such was the case with these false teachers. We uh, saw back, or we see in Titus 1.15, a similar idea of the conscience being seared, and this certainly was the case. And this is in contrast to what Tim, or Paul uh, instructs Timothy uh, to do, which is to have a pure conscience, conscience that isn't defiled, that is pure, that is able to discern right from wrong and to uh, respond appropriately to the truth. But unlike uh, Timothy and his desire to have a pure conscience, these, these false teachers had consciences which were seared with a hot iron, Paul says. Paul then goes on in verses uh, 3, at the beginning of verse 3, to give us a little bit more of a glimpse of what the doctrines that were being taught were. And uh, I've kind of titled this section, The Demonic Doctrines. The Demonic Doctrines, because that's exactly what they were. They were doctrines which, whose origination came from Satan, from the Satanic realm. And in verse 3, uh, verse 3 gives us a better indication of the content of the heresy in the church. Remember, the heresy had to do with the law, myths, and genealogies, according to 1 Timothy 1, 3-11. It is unlikely that this is an exhaustive list, though, that Paul gives here. He gives us two examples of the false teachings uh, being propagated, but uh, certainly there was much more going on, many more issues in the church. However, perhaps these were the prominent problems that uh, were that were being accepted and that were uh, infiltrating the church. And the first uh, demonic doctrine that these false teachers are propagating and that some are giving heed to and uh, being enamored by and following after is this. In verse 3, uh, they are forbid, forbidding, so, uh, forbidding to marry. These false teachers were pro, uh, uh, prohibiting marriage. Nowhere uh, does Scripture prohibit marriage. In fact, uh, Proverbs 31.10 tells us, you know, he who finds uh, you know, an excellent wife finds a good thing. And so... Uh, certainly scripture doesn't prohibit marriage. The scripture gives various, in fact, the scripture gives various instructions to husbands and wives, assuming then that people will, you know, be given a marriage and marry. And uh, these instructions are both, you know, positive in nature and there's negative commands, prohibitions in, in the marriage relationship. Paul does say to the unmarried and widows that it is, uh, that it is good if they stay unmarried, as he does in 1 Corinthians 7, uh, 2 through 11, we find this. But this, I don't think, is the norm. It's not what Paul is saying. He's just saying, uh, you know, there are some who, will, who are in that state, and that's okay. In fact, it can be a good thing because they can minister perhaps more effectively in some manner than those who have, you know, the responsibilities of, of a marriage relationship, not bad, but extra responsibility that comes with being married and then most likely having children. But uh, it is, it is likely the false teachers here reason that marriage uh, prohibited believers from being wholly committed to the Lord. And that's the issue here, you know, that they're putting it at such a high level that they prohibit marriage because they're saying, well, in order to be a spiritual person, in order to be fully committed to the Lord, in order to be even saved, we'll go as far to say that, you, have to, you cannot be married. Well, nowhere does Scripture teach this. One can be wholly committed to the Lord, can be a, a person progressing in their sanctification, be saved, and yet be married, of course. Singleness can allow one to serve uh, without the responsibilities that married people have, but neither, uh, neither status, married or unmarried, is wrong nor necessary for salvation or sanctification, for that matter. 
The second uh, false teaching that these uh, false teachers were spreading, this second demonic doctrine, is this, that they were demanding abstinence from certain foods. Look at verse 3 again. It says, these false teachers are forbidding to marry and commanding to abstain from foods which God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. This error likely reflects the mosaic distinction between certain foods that were clean and others that were unclean. And, of course, uh, we know that that was true at at one time, that uh, they were to follow those mosaic laws, to submit themselves to those regulations. Um, But we know that uh, here where we're at in this uh, portion of Scripture, that uh, those laws have been put aside. But this error, of course, continued on, and we see this throughout uh, many of the New Testament uh, epistles. This error is uh, addressed in Colossians 2.16 and verses 21 to 23. Of course, the question of food offered to idols is addressed in 1 Corinthians 8. Uh, But remember, the Mosaic laws concerning clean or unclean foods have been set aside. Remember Acts chapter 10, Peter up on the rooftop, and uh, the sheet comes down and, and... God declares that that which was once called unclean is, is, uh, is clean. And don't call common what, what, is, uh, what has been made clean. To Paul, the proper response to then to the question of eating foods was to eat after having expressed thanksgiving through prayer. And so Paul then here is giving a rebuttal to this false teaching. And uh, he really doesn't address the first uh, teaching that people are to forbid from marriage, but um, but uh, of course we can know from other scriptures how we are to address that and what scripture says concerning this. But rather he gives his, his attention to this second prohibition, which is to abstain from foods. And Paul says here that we're not to do this because, uh, he says in verse 3, that which God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. So we are not to, uh, uh, to abstain from these things because God has created them to be received with thanksgiving. The Ephesian deceivers refuse to recognize that everything God created is good. They flatly deny the goodness of God's creation, which would have led them to understand that nothing is to be re- uh, rejected, but it is to be received with gratitude, to be received with thanksgiving and Uh, through prayer. And Paul once again then emphasizes that God's purpose in giving good things to men is so that uh, in their enjoyment of those gifts, they would would praise God. They would praise the Lord. And by gratefully receiving uh, these gifts, such as food to eat, believers then fulfill that noble intention for which those things were created. Romans uh, 11.36 sums up this perspective where it says, For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. We also saw in Romans chapter 14 this evening, which Drew read, that in verse 6, we are to receive these things with thanksgiving, with gladness. Verse 14 also has the same idea of receiving the things which God has made with with, with gladness and thanksgiving. So we're not to... uh, not to abstain from these foods because God has de- one, declared them good, uh, but also they are, they are meant for our enjoyment because uh, they have been given to us by God. So first, uh, Paul re- uh, gives his, kind of his uh, rebuke of them by saying God has created them as good, but also he says they are created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. And what Paul is then saying is that those who believe and know the truth, those who are born again, who have been, uh, who have been saved by God, recognize that what God has made is good. They know this because of what Scripture teaches, because of what the apostles' teaching consisted of, and they know it from the Old Testament Scriptures as well even from the very beginning of creation. Everything that God created was good. Then verse 4 says, For every creature of of God is good, and nothing is to be refused if it is received with thanksgiving. And so really what verse 4 is doing is just kind of reemphasizing what verse 3 already has said. And so 
by doing this, Paul is just kind of re, uh, reconfirming uh, and emphasizing the fact that they are not to abstain, but they are to receive it because God has created it good and, because, uh, and that we are to receive it with thanksgiving. Remember, um, those good things from God that believers gratefully receive are sanctified by the means of the word of God and prayer. We see this in verse, chapter, or verse 5. For it is sanctified, that is the food, is sanctified by the word of God and prayer. Um, of course, we know sanctified means to be set apart for holy use. And the means by which that is accomplished are the word of God and prayer, Paul says. Uh, prayer obviously refers to the thanksgiving that expresses gratitude. And um, this is kind of where we get, in part, the idea of, of, you know, before a meal, we give thanks to the Lord. Giving thanks because what God has given is good and it is, comes from God. And so we receive it as that and, and are grateful and we give thanks to God. And by doing so, we glorify him and his, uh, uh, through what he has given to us. The word uh, seems to refer to the very word of God, so that, you know, even re- referencing back to Acts chapter 10 and other portions of Scripture, where Scripture uh, indicates that these foods are clean, they are good, they are to be received. So in this way, then, uh, it is sanctified by the word of God because God's word has permitted it and told us to partake of it uh, gratefully and with gratitude. Uh, in the pastoral epistles, the word of God refers to uh, the message of salvation. And through the mess- that message, believers have come to know the truth in Christ. And uh, part of that truth, then, is that Christ has ab- abolished the dietary laws. According to Mark seven nineteen, our Lord declared all f- foods clean. And then, of course, Acts, Acts, Acts 10 and Romans 14. We know that the dietary regulations were temporary, intended to teach um, the people of God, Israel, the importance of, of uh, being set apart from those around them and, and uh, demonstrating that they are the people of God. And so then for the false teachers then to reimpose these restrictions would to then be manufacturing a, a works-based uh, system, a, a righteousness of one's own that denies then the work of Christ and dishonors God. If believers then understand that the gospel has been abolished, or the gospel has abolished dietary laws, and in prayer offer God thanks, then they can receive all his good gifts, and he will be glorified, including the food that they eat. Mandatory celibacy and abstinence from foods in general or particular is then, as Paul says, the teaching of demons. It denies God's goodness in creation and robs him of the glory and praise he is due. It is the denial of God's truth as revealed in his word. And this mere externalism neither pleases God nor promotes genuine spirituality. And so Paul rebukes them for this and corrects their thinking. As we close this evening, uh, I want to remind us that apostasy is an ever-present danger in the church. It was then from the early Christian church, and it is still a problem today. Believers ought to avoid then these, these uh, deceivers and their doctrines, which, which are from, from Satan. They are, they are Satan's agents. We would do well to avoid them altogether and to be discerning in who we listen to and what we accept as the truth And we would do well then to rather giving heed to all the other kind of teachings out there, give heed to the word of God, give heed to his word. And in doing so, we learn that we can receive the good gifts that God has given with thanksgiving, like marriage, like food. All these things are from God and if received in the proper manner are to God's glory and acceptable for the believer. And like Uh, the author of Hebrews warns us in chapter 13, verse 9, do not be carried away by uh, varied and strange teachings. For it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace, not by foods through which those who were thus occupied were not benefited. 
And so my encouragement as we close this evening is to give heed to the word of God. Be influenced by the word of God and the preachers of God's word, not by deceptive spirits and doctrines of demons. Let's close in a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Lord, we want to be true to it. We don't want to manipulate it to fit our system of thinking, to uh, promote ourselves, to put ourselves in authority over Scripture so that uh, we can make ourselves look good, make others look good while uh, displeasing you and and rejecting the, the truths of Scripture. Lord, help us to be discerning. Help us to recognize and avoid Satan's agents, false teachers, and the doctrines which they spread through their deceptive lies, Lord, we pray. Uh, Lord, we thank you that um, you, you have given us uh, uh, leaders, Lord, to guard us from that. But, Lord, we must be discerning ourselves. Um, the pastor can't always be sitting beside us to help us, and so we must know your word and know the truth so that when we hear error, we recognize it as that and don't become enamorated by it because of how good that person sounds or uh, because of how it's, how it's crafted. Lord, help us, we pray. Guard us by your word. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. All right. Uh, Pastor has a word before we close. And, yeah, thank uh, you, Jansen. Yeah. Um, I was just going to say, sometimes these sorts of doctrines are um, employed in the service of what we might call just rank antinomian or um, sensual people uh, who want to uh, you know, do whatever indulgence uh, they can in the flesh. But often also they are used in service of a religious-sounding kind of uh, thing. Uh, especially like forbidding marriage and forbidding to eat certain kinds of foods are often a religious thing. And uh, it's mentioned in uh, Colossians chapter 2 where Paul is warning Christians against this kind of legalistic approach where he says, do not touch, do not taste, do not handle. That's the kind of mantra of the false religionist which all concern things which perish with the using, he says, according to the commandments and doctrines of men. These things indeed have an appearance of wisdom in self-imposed religion, false humility, and neglect of the body. But here's the thing. They are of no value against the indulgence of the flesh. Uh, They do not help you to win the battle against sin in your life. In fact, Forbidding to marry can actually cause sin. Uh, Forbidding certain foods can encourage people to think wrongly about how true uh, faith is generated, how uh, how it operates, and that sort of thing. So don't be deceived by those those kinds of things that, oh, that's a new thing. It sounds religious. It sounds like, you know, I'll be a really good person if I restrain myself from those things. But no, not so. Um, Paul warns us against them here in Colossians as well as what Jansen you've preached in, uh, in Timothy. Thank you for that. Very good.